Ever been to Delaware? If not, now's the time to visit. You'll find a lot of fun in a little state. Since you can drive anywhere in the state in a couple of hours, you'll spend less time driving and more time enjoying. Explore from the bays to the beaches, stroll the boardwalks, and have an oceanside bonfire. Get a taste of Delaware at one of the award-winning restaurants and enjoy a local craft brew. See the first state's unique historic landmarks and experience Delaware's endless discoveries. Plan your adventure today at visitdelaware.com. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. A rich friend wants to take you out to a super fancy dinner. You go. Her card, though, gets declined. She blames the card company, asks you to cover the bill, and promises to pay you back. The bill is $3,000. What do you do? I would probably end up paying for it because I would just feel uncomfortable. So I would pay for it even though it would suck because it's the right thing to do. I would say, of course. Of course I'll pay for it. Uh, but just real quick, I just got to go to the bathroom. I'll be right back and then I'll take care of it. And then I would leave. I would either climb out the window. I would run out the door. I, I would not. $3,000? I, I don't have that kind of money. I, I guess I, I could be like, well, you know, I don't have that kind of money, but you could have my car. <laughs> could I pay for the meal with a car? Here, just take the car now. I, I mean, that's insane. Nope, I would not pay. I would run. Or um, climb out a window. I would definitely pay it and assume they would pay me back. But that's only because I can afford it and I would assume I have to. I will give major eye roll to my new friend. Then I would want to hatch a cool plan, you know, like a dine and dash sort of situation. Something cool for the memory books. But because I'm a nice Minnesota gal and that shit would haunt me for the rest of my life, I would put my credit card down. Then I would look at my zany friend and I would say, next time you're buying me Popeye's fried chicken sandwiches. $3,000? What the fuck did we order? An entire goddamn cow? And in what fantasy world do I have 3K just sitting in a bank account? You do realize minimum wage is still $7.25, right? This frou-frou bullshit restaurant better be prepared for my friend to wash dishes for the next two months as payment, because I ain't got the means to cover this shit. As for the tip, here's one. Start asking questions actual people can answer, you bougie fuck. Welcome back to Fraudsters, the show where we tackle schemers and scammers and why we normies believe them so easily. I'm Cena Gaznavi. Justin Williams is here as always. And that was another one of our patented questions that we like to ask so much. And we figured it's about time that we open this voicemail line up to everybody. So if you want to answer one of our questions that we've had on any of our shows, give us a ring. 702-721-7437. Leave us your name and your email at the end just in case we want to use it on the show. And if you've got a fraud story or if you've been defrauded, tell us all about it. Leave it on the voicemail, 702-721-7437. All right, Justin, I got to know, would you pay for the tab or would you find a way to get the heck out of there? I don't know, man. $3,000. I actually eat at a lot of very nice restaurants as like oh, a- look at you. Humble brag. No, one of the ways that I actually enjoy- uh, like my money is like restaurants. That's like a big, that'd be my, big right. part of my expenditure. That's part of the, and I just can't even relate to that. Cause I've actually never run up a $3,000 bill, even at some of the nicest restaurants actually on in the world. <laughs> well, I was going to say, you know what? I actually, I think I would pay it. Yeah. <laughs> I would put it all on credit. If I had like, I think I had a credit card enough with $3,000 balance on it. So I would pay it. You know why? This is messed up. I would pay yeah. it. Because I wouldn't want it to look like a black guy couldn't eat at that place. 
Oh. Like I would have to, I would have to pay it out of the race. Like I would have to I would have to do it for all black people. I would have to pay yeah. the bill. Oh god, that's so sad. I'm sorry that that is even a thought that you have to have. That Oh been, yeah. Oh, we're not individuals, man. The the privilege that I have for not even thinking about that is also trouble. No, yeah, cuz I you can't do it cuz uh if I don't pay that bill, then like the, then they're not going to believe like some senator that comes in. He's going to get treated like he's at a racist Denny's. <laughs> yeah, then it would be a whole story and be like, well, we've had it happen before here. Oh, <laughs> yeah. my God. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so sad. Oh, wow. I know. That's, that's dark humor. No exactly. <laughs> but, you know, Justin, this was a hypothetical question we asked people. But in 2017, this scenario actually happened except on steroids. The friend in this case was Anna Delvey the fake German heiress, and that's the object of our story here today and next week. And instead of a fancy restaurant, Justin, it was a trip to one of the nicest hotels in Marrakech, Morocco. And instead of $3,000, it was, drumroll, $62,000. So like I said, roids. Our hypo on roids is reality. Yeah, man. Again, this is just... I've been to Morocco. Uh, I didn't go to Marrakesh, uh, but I took the whole trip to Morocco and two other African countries, and we stayed in very nice hotels and Airbnbs. I think that cost me $2,500. So I'm just wondering, <laughs> how in the hell did you run up a $62,000 bill? Time and time again, I've realized that like there's a certain level of wealth where just normal is different. Where it's just like, that's not expensive. Like, you would say that. Like, I, I've I've confronted that when talking to people in New York City about real estate. Or if they'll say, like, you know, like like $10,000 a month isn't, isn't very much for a two-bedroom. Like, I don't understand what world we're living in right now. And it's just this level of normal. But that's exactly what Anna Delvey, or her birth name, which was Anna Sorokin, preyed upon. This is what she used. She used that kind of different level of wealth, that that new normal that's created by the uber rich in this country as a way, as the foundation for her cons. Now, Anna Delvey, or Anna Sorokin, as she was born, Anna Sorokin was born a middle-class girl in Russia who developed an affinity for luxury early on in her life. Anna Delvey, her alter ego was the identity she used to con thousands from hotels, restaurants, rich socialites, and almost even made her own self-titled foundation that was to be an art and social space that was like the Soho house. She called herself Anna Delvey, and she took New York City by storm. She said she was a German heiress with a hefty trust fund. She handed out $100 tips and lived in Manhattan's trendiest hotels. She did spend money recklessly. She wanted to buy a $1,000 infrared sauna that she could have delivered to the hotel. And she wanted to you know, do the most expensive beauty treatments. Anna had more than 60,000 followers on Instagram and spent her time rubbing shoulders with New York's elite. She told her wealthy friend she was opening a private club in a building on Park Avenue South. But it was all lies. <laughs> it was all lies. I mean, you know, Justin, I, I, I've seen like Alex Jones try to hawk vitamins online. Barack Obama is putting satellites inside of your mind. Now, if you take these vitamins, it will block the signals that are attempting to take over your body in the name of fascism and communism. <laughs> exactly. And there's influencers on Instagram buying followers from China and twerking next to off-brand smoothies. But I've never seen someone create an actualize their status quite like Anna. So on Fraudsters today, we're going to devote two episodes to her, this early 20-something oddball who photoshopped, check-kited, social jujitsued her way into attempted grand larceny, theft of services, and larceny in the second degree. Oh, and she's the subject of a Netflix and HBO project now. The Netflix one is a Shonda Rhimes show which will probably make a billion fucking dollars. And all of this will be moot because she won't be a fraudster anymore. She will be a successful Hollywood mogul. Ugh. <laughs> yes. All right, let's track this story now. And to do that, we're going to need some help. 
Justin and I actually sat down for a long interview with Emily Palmer. She's a freelance journalist and frequent contributor to the New York Times. And we actually met her when we were both filling in at Sirius together. And she came in and talked about covering the El Chapo hearings. And Justin, you remember we we interviewed her for the El Chapo trials. And then she started talking about all these fraudster stories that she had done. Yeah, it was really cool, man. It's like uh, what's great about her work is that she really gets into the like insane atmosphere of these courtrooms. And I think you'll see that detail come through on her reporting. It's like to actually be at the ground level of this stuff is like insane. Yeah, trials are boring. And big ups to Emily for being able to go through all of those court proceedings and understand all the inner workings and deliver that content to us. So we appreciate all the work that she's doing. If you want to check her out online, you can find her at her English and Spanish Instagram and Twitter accounts at Emily E. Palmer. So over the course of these two episodes, you'll hear clips from our interview with Emily and then us in our virtual studio. So let's jump right in. So let's just get right into Anna Delvey, Anna Sorokin. First of all, how do you name her or how do you describe her name or what what do you refer to her as so that we can at least have a common sense way? Because even in our file names for the show, I have changed it several times in multiple places. What is her name? Well, it's Anna Sorokin, but I mean, I also interchange it with Anna Sorokin, Anna Delvey. Uh, I mean, she really is both people. To, to such an extent that at one point my editor thought she might be schizophrenic and actually believe she were both people, which is not the case at all. I had a very awkward jailhouse interview where I said, so sometimes you feel like you're this one person and sometimes you feel like you're this other person. And she looked at me and she's like, I'm not schizophrenic if that's what you're trying to ask. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so offended. Right. But uh, but she really is is sort of both people. And I think that she was both people even to the victims that were testifying, they'd always known her as Anna Delvey. And so it really was, you know, one of those things where, where, where both names uh, were used by, by just about everyone. So let's talk about her early life before and, and I guess the Anna Sorokin part of this whole thing. She came from yeah. modest upbringings, right? Her family's like middle class. They're immigrants. Tell me about that. So she was born in Russia. She grew up in Germany or moved to Germany later. Uh, her dad had a heating and cooling business, definitely middle class. Uh, there was there were some thoughts that maybe the family had had some money and lost it, uh, but certainly not a, a, a family of means. Um, she speaks very little about her time in Russia or even Germany. You know, in, in talking with me, um, it's as if her life began in 2014, working for a, a magazine in Paris, and then things really got started when she moved to, to New York. And that's, of course, the emergence of, of Anna Delvey. But very little is known about her, her childhood. She was born in Domodedovo, Russia, which is just outside Moscow. And then the family moved to Eschweiler, Germany. Just Domodedovo. Wasn't that Raekwon's third album, Domodedovo? <laughs> I'm sure I mispronounced that too. But, you know, then she moves to Paris and that's where everything starts. Wow. So, Justin, I mean, that's a little bit about her early life, which is interesting because, you know, much like a normal person, we don't know that much about her early life, right? She's not like a Jim Baker that has been in the public view forever or like a Jacob Wool that like at 18 started doing CNBC hits or something, you know? There's not that much to know, and especially when you come from another country and you kind of use a pseudonym and... That that stuff is interesting because there's so much still that we're we don't know. And maybe from the Netflix show or the HBO thing they're doing, we're going to find out more about her. Yeah, we actually know more about Raza Ghoul's origins than Anna Sorkin's, ironically <laughs> enough. <laughs> yes, the pits. All right, and this next clip from our interview with Emily kind of gets into how she got over to America, which there's conflicting reports around it, but we think it was around 2013 that she came to New York City. Okay, so we think about more about who she was. She worked at this magazine, uh, Purple, right? That was mm -hmm. the name of the magazine. Was that where she, you said that's where she started developing this Anna Delvey personality. Did you find in any of your research or any of your interviews maybe what her first con was or what her first moment of when she kind of got the taste of the of the fraudster in her? 
she actually first used the name Anna Delvey while working at Purple, and it was used as her sort of pen name. She said that there were plenty of Anna Sorokins, if you Googled, uh, and there were no Anna Delvies <laughs> until after the trial, she said. So she used that to sort of differentiate herself, is what she said. And she said she used it as her pen name while working at Purple. And uh, she was taking photographs, and that would be the name that would go underneath the, uh, the photograph. While there, she also learned how to use Photoshop. And so I wouldn't say that while working at Purple, this was necessarily her first con, but this is where she starts to kind of delve in. She's, she's changed her name, and then she learns how to use software, which eventually she, you know, uses to fake bank statements. The very thing she learned at Purple is what she then uses later to, to create fake uh, billing information and try and uh, get you know, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, from from banks in New York. Never underestimate the value of a good first job, ladies and gentlemen. First internship. <laughs> first internship. Never underestimate the power of a good internship. I mean, it could teach you skills that you'll use much later in life. They could even send you to jail later. You never know. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> she, uh, she actually, she told me that Delvey was her middle name. She didn't make up the name. It wasn't just a random name. Like, because I said, I said, you know, how did you come up with Delvey? What, you know, what's the significance of that? And she said, oh, it's my mother's maiden name. You know, which to her wasn't really a lie. It was, you know, connected to her. She just picked it up. It was different. It was new. There's lots and of Anastrokens. We, we couldn't uh, verify that. No, it did not appear to be true. Got it. So what I, what I hear there is, right, is like it's part of the rationalization of that for her, right? The rationalization of like, I'm not so much of a fraud. I'm going to just steep this in a truth that I believe. Yeah, I think that's probably pretty fair. It seems like you believed it for a little bit, too. I was, I was willing to accept it as, as potentially factual. You know, I mean... The interview that, that I did with her, the idea was just to get her perspective. You know, she didn't testify on the, on, on stand. Most of the people who did testify were pretty boring, black suited bankers. You know, like what's the story here? And of course the story was her. So, you know, what can she tell us? And she had an answer for everything, uh, and an interesting answer for everything and an answer that if you wanted to believe her, you could believe it. You know, the maiden name, that that sounded pretty legitimate to me. I'm a conspiracy theorist a little bit too. And also I'm into like ethnic politics and stuff. I'm suspicious of it as an attempt to de-russify herself. So this is, this is interesting. Um, she, you know, she speaks Russian, obviously. Um, her family's Russian. She was born in Russia. Um, she definitely speaks Russian. She speaks wonderful English. Her German was actually never that good. So the fact that she pretended to be a German heiress was a little, a little intriguing. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> uh, and I guess not that many people that she was hanging around with spoke German because you would think otherwise eventually somebody would have, you know, that would have caught up with her. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, she didn't pick a language that like 19 people speak, right? She picked a language that like, you know, is spoken by a fair number of people. <laughs> the um, biggest one in Europe. <laughs> and, uh, and then, I mean, the other issue too, when I... When I went for one of these interviews uh, at Rikers, the first one I had all to myself. The second one, there were two other reporters, one from a German outlet and one uh, from an American outlet, but she was Russian. And she looked at me and she said, well, I guess we'll do the interview in English for you. So she doesn't speak Russian. <laughs> and I thought, don't really think it's for me. I don't think you're going to get Anna to speak Russian. I think she, like, like I just did not see her, like, obviously she speaks it, but I did not see her breaking that wall and speaking Russian. I, and I knew her German wasn't any good. So I thought, actually, I think I'm going to be okay for this interview, right? <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, one of the things that, that goes to that, just her very lack of interest in, in those roots and in those early years, I was really interested in that. I really wanted more information about that. And it was like pulling teeth even to get the city where she was you know, born. In fact, originally she said Moscow. And I was like, Moscow, Moscow, or like 40 miles outside of Moscow. And she's like, oh, well, you know, it's actually this other city um, near Moscow. 
Uh, and that was really it. You know, she didn't go into any of her experiences growing up there. And, and I mean, and that's something that I think is so interesting, right? Is because those early experiences so often shape why people do the things that they do later. And somebody who's so uninterested in, in their own early story is that much more interesting to me, you know, the total break between who she was and who she considers herself to be. Yeah, I you know I, I don't know uh, much about uh, money and things like that, but I I do hang out in nightclubs enough to understand. I know who her I know who her target audience was, and I know that uh, like usually R- Russians are young people that are kicking me off the bottle service table because they have it uh, reserved, <laughs> uh, but they're not trying to start a foundation. There's no there's no Soho project, right? It's more of a it's more of a midtown. Uh, vibe and if so, her is our arc right. The German heiress is more convenient for that. It's uh, it's 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 old money rather than new money. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but that's just my conspiracy theory. So after her internship at Purple, she ended up moving to New York City for Fashion Week, the concrete jungle where dreams are made of. Precisely, Cena. These dreams will make you feel brand new. <laughs> exactly right. And you know, if you're in New York City, you gotta have flow. Cash flow. And besides getting some money from her parents, she employed a simple but artful way to keep her cash flow going called check kiting. And to explain that, I want to take you to a place. Now close your eyes for me. Everyone close your eyes. Unless you're driving, don't close your eyes. Or operating heavy machinery, don't close your eyes. Okay, don't, don't close your eyes at all, frankly. I think that would be bad. Just imagine a cool autumn breeze glances by your soft hair. You can feel a hint of cold break through your tan corduroy pants. You look up. You're flying a kite. But you don't know how to fly a kite. Your parents are immigrants. There's no time for fucking kites. So as you panic about failing at life, your kite falls hard, broken, shattered. Now, since you spent your last dollar on this kite, you'll need to find credit to buy a new one. And kites aren't cheap. This is a $100 rose gold kite we're talking about here. Now, let's go back to our field. You're standing there with a broken rose gold kite. But you look around and you're, oddly enough, between two banks. The first bank is called Harmful National Bank. And the other one is called Shameful Savings and Loan. Luckily... You have an account at both. And even better, you know how checks get cleared at both banks. Three business days. But these two banks make all the funds available right when you deposit the check. How convenient. So you walk into Harmful. No one is laughing out loud, but you can feel their stares and the lulls. Middle-aged man with broken kite enters bank. Of course, they're going to look. You pull out your shameful checkbook and write a $100 check from your account at shameful to your account at harmful. Then you gently lay your kite down and deposit the check at harmful. Now harmful doesn't know that you don't have any money in your shameful account, but they're going to credit you the full value of the check anyways and just wait three business days to actually find out if you have the money. And boom. The bank accepts it, credits your harmful account with $100. Almost done. This is my favorite part. You walk to the nearest ATM and pull out $100. Cold cash rising from the ashes like a phoenix. Out of thin air, you have created wealth. Time for that new rose gold kite. This is simple check kiting. Now, if you want to imagine complex check kiting, it's very easy. Close your eyes. Just kidding. Don't close your eyes. Imagine you're back in the field. And instead of two banks, it's 20 banks. And instead of $100, it's thousands of dollars that you can play back and forth in between the banks, playing on their three business day check clearings, and also on the fact that they will give you portions or all of the funds that you deposit immediately. Sometimes you may not even need the cash. You may need to just prove to someone like a harmful or shameful banker 
that you actually have lots of money. And all you need to do to stay afloat is keep writing checks before the overdraft fees start to pile up. Now you can buy all the rose gold kites in the world. This was just one of the ways Anna was able to supplement her lifestyle in New York City. Gotta have that flow. While in New York, it's good to remember one important thing. True baller status is not about what apartment you have, whether it's a penthouse or whether it's on Park Avenue. It's about spending an entire month at the W or another five-star luxury hotel in the city. That's what Anna did. She was able to bounce between these hotels. And she did it by walking in like she was Catherine O'Hara from Schitt's Creek, acting like she had been there before, that she belongs there, that she knew everyone from the bellhops to the concierge to the owner of the hotel itself. Let's go back to our interview with Emily and figure out how she actually went about doing this. So she's she's here, she's rocking it, she's doing these deals. How does she get a hotel room and, and able to stay there? So with hotels, oftentimes you put your card down and then you can you can pay at the end. And so she was putting she was finding ways of like giving them just enough information without actually putting the card down and then eventually just moving to another hotel. She would oftentimes befriend an employee there who would kind of help her with some of this. Uh, and fact, one of uh, the, I think the receptionist at one of the hotels became actually a pretty close friend um, who actually continued running Anna's social media accounts while she was at Rikers. There was this big uh, hoopla when, while she was incarcerated, suddenly there was a picture of Anna on a rooftop and everybody was like, she broke out. She's like taking pictures from the rooftop of Rikers. And it was some rooftop at some, you know, posh restaurant, some brunch she'd had years before that her friend finally posted. It was interesting. She had these big name connections that she threw around to get to the right parties and to get to the right uh, people and to try and get to the money. But she befriended like the little people who had like significant power in their one, you know, niche spot. And so for her, it was, you know, the receptionist at the hotel who might, you know, do something a little funky with her card or, you know, whatever it was that needed to happen so that she didn't end up actually having to pay. And she kept people happy, right? You know, the people that helped her were rewarded in, in, many, in many instances. You know, she didn't have a lot of money, but because she wasn't really spending anything on housing or anything on all these other things, right? She would throw out a $100 tip like it was, you know, candy so you know she helps the people that helped her right so in that moment when you drive you don't if not spending anything all of a sudden you someone you do that kind of like so all of a sudden you drop the hundred dollar tip on someone you've created a moment for anyone that sees it i remember in college i actually um so i guess i was like a fun little guy in college freshman year i was at gw and I'll never forget this. There were these Saudi guys that were at GW too. And they were like hard oil money. And and maybe they weren't. Maybe they were fraudsters. I don't know. But you, this brings up an amazing point because they would invite me to the club because I was like this goofy little kid. And they loved seeing me just run around at the club. And we went to the club. We're outside the nightclub getting ready to go into like the table service line. And the guy whips out a wad of cash and gives $100 to a homeless person. And everyone's like, whoa. One, you have a $100 bill. Two, you're giving it to a homeless person. Three, we're going to table service and I'm not even 21 yet. And so there's all those moments. Like that memory has now stuck with me some whatever. I don't know how many years ago that was now. But that many years later, which is phenomenal, how she must have known the power of a moment. Where do you think, do you think she learned that in the magazine business? Or do you think that's something that she just innately figured out along the way? That to me was actually quite genuine. She has a very, I think, genuine interest in the human psyche. Uh, I think that this is, this is her true self. She's very interested in people. I visited her at Rikers. She was doing great there. She had friends. She was like, thriving. I mean, she was getting written up all the time, but she was like, she was not 
she was the most upbeat person I've ever spoken to who was incarcerated. Most of you were like, this kind of sucks. And she was like, oh, you know, it's fine. Oh, I've been sentenced to four to 12 years. You know, I have friends here and I'll make friends in the next place. I probably already know some of them. You know, like she was very comfortable seemingly in any situation. You could drop her on the Upper East Side or you could drop her at Rikers and she was good to go. Uh, and it was because she studied the people she was with and she learned how to tap into whoever she was with and make them intrigued by her. That's all it takes. Just a moment. You shake someone up, you influence someone, and in that brief moment of their vulnerability, maybe you drop their boss's name. Maybe you tell them you'll wire the money instead of put down a credit card. You buy some time, you tip a $100 bill, and people think of you as this wealthy person. But why? What was the point of doing all this? Did she really think that if she just acted rich, that somehow it would manifest into reality? Yes, absolutely. 100%, 100%, yes, yes, yes. Yes, it worked. It always works. It constantly works. <laughs> and what is a better sign of wealth than creating your own foundation? Let's go back to Emily and find out how Anna started her quest to build the Anna Delvey Foundation. But then she's got this big, the Annie Delvey Foundation project. How did she go from, I want to uh, con people to continue my lifestyle to, I'm going to make a 20 plus million dollar art center? You know, the way I saw it, it was always in pursuit of creating this Anna Delvey Foundation uh, or in pursuit of, of pretending to want to create the Anna Delvey Foundation. Fall 2015 is the earliest I have on record where she starts talking about the Anna Delvey Foundation. And she meets with Gabriel Andres Calatrava, who's an architect and engineer. And they have a meeting in fall 2015, and they met about a dozen times talking about the project. A dozen times? That's so many meetings. That's so many meetings. So many meetings. <laughs> and Gabriel Andres Calatrava uh, if I remember correctly, is like the son of a, a pretty famous uh, architect in New York. So, but he's sort of still getting his feet under him. So he takes all these meetings. He's really excited about the project. He is actually one of the few people who is conned by her and actually comes and testifies about it. Um, you know, we had a bunch of bankers that came in for the trial. We had Rachel Williams, of course, but Gabriel Andres Calatrava was like, the linchpin for all the people who didn't actually come and testify at this trial. And that's something I definitely want to talk to you about later. But he like, he was this interesting link for her because he was the son of a famous architect. And that was important to Anna. She's big and dropping names. And so he was like the connection she needed. And he knew a lot of other people. And, and she really um, kind of milked him for his interest in the project. And I think he was sort of hungry to get his own, his own thing underway. And so he really did. He met with her almost a dozen times and uh, he estimated 10 to 12 times throughout. And she made all these connections and she could drop everybody else's name the more people she met. And it just uh, kind of grew from there. Because they probably, she'd probably drop their name, right? And then maybe one of that, that person would be like, hey, do you know this Anna person? And they'd be like, yeah, she's real cool. We partied the other night. Is that kind right. of... So what was the Annie Delvey Foundation? Well, this actually reminds me of the old uh, fraud triangle, right? So it's opportunity, pressure, and rationalization, right? What's the opportunity? She's integrated within these fancy communities. There's an opportunity to take advantage of these wealthy people. What's the pressure? She doesn't have any money. She doesn't actually have a real place to live. She's, you know, conning everyone she can just to keep up her lifestyle. And what's the rationalization? The Annie Delvey Foundation. If she makes this big fancy art center, everything will be okay and she will pay everyone back all of this money. She will be an actual socialite and she'll have the real money to back it up and no one will be none the wiser a beautiful rationalization and this adf the anna delvey foundation 
was going to be something like the Soho House. It was going to be beautifully decorated on a Park Avenue building that had a fancy Italian architect involved. And it was going to bring in all the wealthy people and also be a place that was inclusive of, of people that were just wanting to experience the arts. This was her like grand vision, however diluted you could imagine it actually being. And she knew how to play the game to get the wheels going to make something like this happen. She was making business deals at nightclubs. Like she was meeting people at parties and like using that. I mean, she took networking to a whole other, a whole other level. I feel like a lot of people like say they're making deals at nightclubs. She was making deals at nightclubs. She was meeting people. She was, you know, dropping the name. She was making this sort of, you know, extravagant uh, appearance, but it was all an apparition. It was all smoke and mirrors. Um, she would meet one person. He would connect her to another person. She would drop that other person's name to the next person. And suddenly she had this whole network and she had a, a real circle of, you know, Upper East Side elite that were, you know, at her beck and call. Oh my God. The most gullible people in America. <laughs> It's kind of like how every famous person from my neighborhood back home, everybody's their cousin all of a sudden. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it helps. <laughs> she was good at keeping up appearances. She, you know, had, you could almost call them imaginary friends. She had, you know, she had fake people in charge of, of her family's trust. She had several email accounts that she, you know, wrote back to the banks, you know, and she would copy several folks on the email. They were all actually her but she would you know she would be you know the guy who was in charge of of the the trust she would be you know this person or that person and at a certain point i mean you know photoshopping the bank records of course these types of things happen but i think her persona and uh and the the people who were vouching for her um because they believed that persona made people just sort of like shrug and assume that, yeah, it must be true. Another thing that was said, and I, I definitely, I definitely buy into this. You think of the con man as this like real magnetic person that you just like want to be around all the time, right? She wasn't that way. She, her magnetism is almost like a deflection. It's almost like she doesn't want to be with you, and so you want to be with her. She has this very interesting kind of way in which she interacts with people that is both alluring and as though she's sort of just deigning to be in, in your presence. That is, like, for me and for the other people that, like, seem to, to have associated with her was really intriguing, uh, and you just kind of wanted to learn more. She was an interesting character herself. Um, and then the fact that she does study characters, you know, she was studying the people at Rikers and writing a book about that. She was studying the people of the Upper East Side and she's writing another book about that. Like she knew what to tap into at each moment. And she knew like what would get that particular person. You know, the fact that she's pulling a along the son of, of this famous architect, right. And like, this would be one of his first big projects, right. That taps into probably I don't want to speak for him, but probably some of his own insecurities and in trying to like make a name for himself. Right. But then she's also connected to, to his dad and to all these other people, not directly, but just by association, you know, and because he's the son of the famous architect, he has a lot of connections and shows she becomes legitimately connected to some of those people. Some of it's not even just sort of, you know, one stretch over. It's like, no, actually th these people are trying to be pulled in and working on the project. And the Upper East Side, I mean, New York in general is, is just the tiniest of towns, really and truly. And, and the Upper East Side is no exception. It, it's just a small town. It could be, you know, my family's hometown of Jackson, Mississippi. That's the Upper East Side, right? It's small. It's, there's a couple of people and you want to know them and they want to know you or they don't want to know you. And she went to nightclubs and she went to art dealers, Fourth of July parties, and she met these people. And she, you know... She passed off her name and she was that alluring person who, who could tap into to people's insecurities and also what made people tick and what would make people want to be a part of this. And she can talk about the Anna Delvey Foundation in a way that you think it's still going to happen. 
I mean, I was sitting across from her at Rikers and there is a d divide between us, right? Like we aren't even allowed to touch each other. Like she is in jail. She is like, it is done. She's already been sentenced <laughs> oh my. four to 12 years. And she's saying, I'd still like to see the Anna Delvey project go on. And I think, yeah, I get it. I want to see it happen too. I mean, she was talking about the art installation she'd have, the, the society it would bring, and you could just be swept away hearing about it. And in that way, she was the quintessential con woman. I mean, she could really talk, she could talk her way into any room. She could talk her, her dream into any person's reality. And suddenly she had a board of pretty powerful men who were ready to see this project through. And she had none of the money to back it. Rachel Williams, a 28-year-old producer in Vanity Fair's photo department, befriended Anna, and she ended up falling prey to a lot of Anna's schemes. And here's a clip of Rachel on Dr. Oz, speaking of huge frauds, talking about her first impression of Anna. I hate Dr. Oz. Anyways, let's go to the clip. She was um, cheerful, fun-loving. Uh, I was intrigued by her because I had seen her on social media in photos with some of my friends and had noticed that she had a really large Instagram following. Yeah. So I was curious about who this new person in our group was, um, and I was excited to meet her. I mean, she's thinking her Instagram feeds, you know, it is a life many of us would dream of. What did she do to pass herself off as, as a rich heiress? Did she overtly say that, or did you just intuit that from watching her actions? She was a very good study of character. I'd say she was more subtle in the way that she presented her wealth. Um, she lived full-time in hotels, which was, I think, a big tip-off. Um, but she, she did expensive beauty treatments, like $400 eyelash extensions. She, yeah, <laughs> um, she, she shopped a lot. She uh, insisted on going to a personal trainer that cost $300 a session. Um, she had very expensive taste. That's all you need to do, just have fucking expensive taste? That's it? And then you don't have to prove anything? Yeah, I like it too, because it's like, none of that screams heiress, necessarily, to me. She just flashed some cash, and she went to clubs and stuff like that. I like it. It's just, you know, for me, I, you know, I'm like, if I had that kind of money, I'm more into the traditional thing. It's like, for me to get fooled by Anna Delvey, you need to be sitting next to me at the Kentucky Derby. Yeah, and it's got to be one of your horses in the Kentucky Derby. Yeah, yeah, before I think you're one of us. I just, I think <laughs> you're just somebody that got some eyelashes and put them on Instagram. Also, who's doing deals at the club? Come on now. This is crazy. I was going to say, I actually admire Anna for being able to close deals in the club. Do you know how hard it is to negotiate with this in the background? Let me clear my throat. Engine, engine, number nine, on the New York transit line. If my train jumps off the track, pick it up, pick it up, pick it up. Yeah, very difficult. I have to say, I never successfully picked up a girl at, at the club. I don't even think I ever made a friend at the club. I don't think anything involving talking with anything else other than my sexy dance moves ever worked for me <laughs> at the club. So, yeah, good good on you, Anna, for making it work at the club. The only thing that ever happened to me for me at the club is the only place where I've ran up triple-digit drink tabs. You always spend exactly $120. And, yeah, like you said, nothing happens. None, none of that stuff in the commercial is going to happen for you in there. In fact, uh, you spend $120 uh, and someone knocks two of those drinks on your shirt. Yeah, I was never good at walking with a drink. I could never understand how you're supposed to hold champagne and make your way through a dance floor. <laughs> never worked for me. Okay, so let's talk about how she was trying to secure financing for the Anna Delvey Foundation. First thing you got to do, find wealthy person in Manhattan to vouch for you to other wealthy people in Manhattan. Bing, check. She was able to do that with... Andres Gabriel Calastrava, and that's probably the last time I'm going to try to say his name, but he's the son of a famous Italian architect 
who did the Oculus in Manhattan. I don't know if you if you've ever been to Lower Manhattan or Ground Zero is you can go underneath and it's this beautiful mall. It's gorgeous and all these fancy shops are in there that I don't think that are probably all closed right now and no one ever actually went into them when they were open except for like five wealthy oligarchs. So you have your wealthy friend vouching for you everywhere. But to get $40 million for a giant Soho House equivalent place, you can't just go to your local bank. You need an institutional investor. Remember institutional investors from Jacob Wool a few episodes ago? If you have it, take a listen. That's a person that's investing money for a big fund, a big pool of money, like a retirement fund or a pension fund. And this person is responsible to invest that money. So Anna starts working closely with Andy Lance, who is a law partner of Joel Cohen, not the director, but Joel Cohen is actually the the prosecutor of Jordan Belfort, a.k.a. the Wolf of Wall Street. So here's an email he wrote to City National Bank and Fortress Investing Group to try to get that institutional investor involved. He said, Our client, Anna Delvey, is undertaking a very exciting redevelopment of 281 Park Avenue South backed by a marquee team for this type of venue and space. He went on to say, Her personal assets, which are quite substantial, are located outside the U.S., some of them in trust with UBS outside of the U.S. The money she received, he added, would be fully secured by letters of documentation. So when the banker at City National asked to see the UBS statements, he receives a list of figures from a man named Peter W. Henneke. Henneke? Henneke. H-E-N-N-E-C-K-E. We, we got to find like a pronunciation person for this show. I thought I knew how to say names, but I have no idea. Uh, and this Peter Henneke said over email, please use these projections for now. I'll send the physical statements on Monday. And then the question comes back. The banker wanted to know, are you from UBS? Yes, directly, over email. And Anna's on this email. And Anna jumps in and just says, Peter is the head of my family office. Someone is doing some major wealth signaling. Okay, so if you don't know what a family office is, don't worry. We're going to go back to our field with our rose gold kite. And all those banks, remember all those banks that you were around? But there is a smaller, a smaller building. It's a very small, elegant office. You knock on the door. A man comes out in a rose gold suit, opens the door, and asks, Are you my Uber driver? (laughs) No. No, I'm not your fucking Uber driver. But you would like to bank there. The man in the gold suit laughs. He explains, This is a family office. We invest the money of a wealthy family. Well, what family? How wealthy? As he's going back into the office, he turns over his shoulder and looks back at you. Have you ever seen the color rose gold? They invented it. Okay, so how does this all come to a head? She's got these two banks. She really wants $40 million, but she's going to have to settle for twenty-five, and it seems like now she's even going to have to settle for $22 million. I feel so bad. She's asking City National, hey, can you give me this $22 million? They flat out say no, absolutely not. So she turns all of her attention to Fortress Group. And now this is where she's bringing together all of the dark arts of conning. She starts photoshopping financial documents for Fortress Group to prove that she's a wealthy person. Combine that with the web of email addresses to make it look like she's got her people and her team and her family office working on this on her behalf. And then she goes and charms, in her own cold and weird way, a banker at Fortress Group. Finding someone on the inside to help you get a deal across the finish line is key. Eventually, Fortress Group decides, hey, you know what? She seems like she's above board. Let's do this deal. All we need, Anna, all we need to get this thing done is a $100,000 deposit. And we'll give you the $22 million. And man, 
that pissed Anna off. She's like, why don't you fucking trust me? Why do you, why, why do you need this money? Why do you need any money? I got money everywhere. She'll give them all the money they want. And they're like, no, man, what are you talking about? We need a hundred. This is good. We're going to give you over $20 million. We need a hundred thousand dollars. By the way, the final loan amount, it was going to be 22 million. A hundred thousand dollars is less than half a percent of $22 million. A normal down payment's like you usually give 10%, you know, for a home, you do like 20% or something like that. And this woman is parading around like she's a billionaire balking at someone asking her for less than half a percent to just bring some semblance of reality into this deal. There's no justice in this world. I fucking can't believe it. Oh, you know what I like about this story? Uh, like I would, I went to buy a 2012 Toyota Prius in Union, New Jersey. And uh, without even looking at my credit score, the first offer that I got was a loan <laughs> at 22% interest. Yes. How much do you have to put down? Without even looking at my good credit score. And this woman is like, I'm not going to show you $5 on a $22 million loan. And she's <laughs> screaming at these people. I mean, it's just it's just an incredible. Lord, give us the confidence and privilege of Anna Delvey one day. So Fortress is sticking strong. Listen, you want the $22 million? Give us $100,000. All right. So think about it now, people. We're going to get into some check kiting again. We're going to use, we're going to flex a little bit here. This is what Anna's doing. She goes to City National again and says, listen, booby. She goes to this guy and is like, listen, all right, I don't need $22 million, All right. You know, right now, all I want is $100,000. And what do you think she's going to do with the $100,000? She's going to take that hundred k and go get the $22 million with it. Of course. But the guy at City National Bank is saying, you can't do that. We can't just give you $100,000. But she comes back at him with her charm or her cold charm or however way we're describing it. And maybe this guy fell for her. Maybe he was taken by her. Maybe intimidated by her, frankly. And she says, let me just overdraft my account and then I'll have my dad and the family office wire the money back in to the account before you know it. This is what should blow your mind, people. She gets the $100,000 and now she can go to Fortress and give them this hundred k as the down payment and get $22 million. Remember, she's starting from $0. Creating this all out of thin air. It's something to be marveled at, really. She's at the finish line. She did it. She's going to get the $22 million. Fortress Group comes back and sends a very typical email. Hey, we just need to have one of our people meet with your banker, confirm the assets, and we'll send you the $22 million. Uh-oh. <laughs> not so fast, Anna. So, turns out, it's not going to be good. You can't meet with any of the bankers because they don't exist. The Fortress Group even volunteered one of their people to go to Switzerland to meet Anna's banker. <laughs> Which is terrible because none of these people exist. This is a web of lies that is now collapsing in on itself like a black hole. So Anna has to pull out of the deal. And so she's like, okay, give me the money back. <laughs> And like any good investment firm, they don't give her all the money back. They only give her $55,000 back. I don't know what they did with the other forty-five. Probably Probably uh, went out to dinner with it. I don't know. So the deal has fallen through. She doesn't have her $22 million. The Anna Delvey Foundation isn't going to happen, at least right now. And on top of that, she just got kicked out of the hotel she was staying at, 11 Howard. And she doesn't know what to do. <laughs> On the contrary, she knows exactly what to do. She's going to hit up her friend Rachel Williams and go to Marrakesh, Morocco for an all-expenses-paid luxurious vacation. Okay, so a little bit of background on these two. Anna met Rachel through friends, and they got super close. And as Rachel details in her book, My Friend Anna, during this time, she's going through a rough patch with her boyfriend, and a lot of her other friends are getting married or having babies, and suddenly there's this, like beautiful and amazing and charismatic person who wants to hang out with her all the time you got 60,000 people on Instagram yes please so the day they're supposed to fly out Anna's quote stuck in a meeting and can't get to her computer so Rachel 
Covers the cost of the flights. I mean, of course, after months of seeing Anna, you know, pay for everything, and she's an opulent woman, she's a classy woman, she's this heiress, of course she's going to cover it. Why wouldn't she be able to pay her back? And then once they make it to the resort, Anna didn't tell her banks that she was traveling. How convenient. And so none of her cards are working. So Rachel accommodates, covering the costs of meals and dresses for Anna at the market because Anna, of course, like a good New Yorker, only showed up in her New York blacks. And even a private tour of the Yves St. Laurent house was on Rachel's card. At this point, Anna already had a running tab with Rachel, so just pour it on top. Rachel was keeping a spreadsheet for invoicing after the trip anyhow, so it was fine. I mean, all the debt tied up with a neat little green X. This is making me anxious, Cena. I want to hop through time and yell to Rachel to stop buying this succubus dresses. I know, I know, I know, Justin, I know. And it, it gets worse. I mean, this whole time they're staring at the La Munia Hotel, the staff is repeatedly, but politely, in a way that you would ask an uber-wealthy person, hey, sir, can you please put your card on file? Because the card they had couldn't be verified. Here's how Jesse Hawk, the videographer that went with Anna and the whole crew, Describe the sequence of events to the Guardian. Anna is the only person I've ever known to board a flight and not bring any of her money with her. She didn't bring credit cards. She didn't bring bank cards. Nothing. She put it all in her checked baggage. And that was the most bizarre thing of the trip. And so I remember Rachel was already then buying whatever Anna wanted. She was already spending money. Nothing was normal about Anna when it came to finances. What was she like with you on holiday? Did you enjoy spending time with her? Mm, Anna's the most boring person I've ever traveled with. Wow. Ever. Okay. She looks at social media. She looks at trends. She reads mag- fashion magazines. Um, she speaks to whoever is at whatever hip party or event, and she learns from these people. She's just a chameleon. You know, I, there are definitely moments where you catch Anna, and she has two two iPhones, and she's on both of them, and she's writing nonstop. And I was wondering who she's talking to. Um, at what point did it really come crashing down? It, things progressively over the next two days. I think Wednesday and Thursday, things got a little aggressive coming from the hotel. They started asking, you know, where is Miss Delvey? They stopped being friendly. You go from staying at the one of the friendliest hotels in the world to suddenly everybody in the, at the front desk is not being friendly. Do you think she was just very persuasive, charismatic? Why do you think they would have let her stay without that charge? If you worked at the front desk of a hotel and your client was spending seven grand a night, that's not the kind of person that you are going to confront or even want to disrupt their stay. So she knew that. And she took that to her advantage. Anytime somebody would question her or talk to her, she would come back to them with an attitude that suggests, I can't believe you're even speaking to me. Oh, no. See, uh, what I love about this story, right, is that she's treated more politely by the people that she's actually robbing than me going into high-end stores legitimately trying to spend money. (laughs) Oh, my God. so sad. It's really sad. And it's like, I'm... I'm really excited about how all this is going for Anna and how it's all like unwinding completely. But yet, to your point, Justin, it is wildly frustrating. It's like it's it's like it's like she just has glasses on. You don't have to follow. You, like you, she's nobody. She's nobody. She's wearing all black clothes. That's it. And it's just like she's just frustrated with everyone. Oh, God. So we have another clip from Nightline. This is Rachel talking about Anna's uh, uh, appeal and Marrakesh. Here's this girl who knows about cool music and, like, is edgier than me, bolder than me in a lot of ways. I was attracted to that, kind of the fun of it and, and the vibrancy and the audaciousness. She pushed me outside of my comfort zone. Rachel learned of Anna's lies the hard way when Anna invited her to an all-expense-paid trip to Marrakesh, Morocco. She's confirmed this private villa at a hotel called La Mamunia, which is one of the nicest hotels in the world. There was a butler, there were three bedrooms. It's like a little private house on the grounds of this really um, opulent hotel property. They asked if I had a credit card that I, I, you know, 
could use and Anna asked if we could just use mine for now. I was told it was going to be this temporary hold. Over the course of the week it became more and more stressful as I realized Anna's credit cards weren't working and I began having different costs. So by the time I left Marrakesh, Anna owed me $62,000, which was at the time more than I made in a year. $62,000. If you legitimately had to front the money for a trip, at what point are you like, hey man, this is a wrap. About $40 in. <laughs> it's like, it's, are you going to go to the ATM and hit me up with that 20 to get the half of that? Yeah. I don't even. I love it. Like 62 grand. It's just like, wow. Okay. So now Anna is back in New York City and she's trying to live her life while still ignoring Rachel Williams's texts and phone calls. And she goes out to lunch at the Nave, a restaurant inside of the Parker New York Hotel, south of Central Park. Fancy spot. July 26, 2017, she goes to the Nave, a restaurant at the Parker Meridian, and she sits down and she orders one glass of wine after another. She gets the fruit salad. She gets a smoked salmon sandwich, and then she eats a second one. And she's sitting there eating, and she invites a friend to join her, but she ends up kind of eating alone. And the bill comes, and she stalls because she doesn't have the money to pay for it. And she tells the officer, who, the arresting officer, who eventually is called, uh, that her friend Bettina Wagner is, is going to come and pay the bill. There was no Bettina Wagner. I was just going to ask, like, Bettina Wagner, I, in my head, when you said that, I was like, I should know her. I even thought in that same second where you said that, I was like, ooh, Justin and I will do a cutaway about Bettina Wagner. And Bettina then Wagner does not exist. Does not exist. <laughs> I am so gullible. How am I so gullible? It's not true. I'm sure Bettina Wagner was a cast member on Gossip Girl. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she says, you know, Bettina Wagner is coming. She's going to pay the bill. Everything's going to be fine. She stalls, she stalls, she stalls. Eventually. I'm, I'm sorry. I just want to just, just to get so I get the timeline right. She doesn't pay. She's she can't pay the bill right. so that the, the restaurant now calls the police because she's not going to pay. Just right. a basic, straightforward. You're not paying. We're calling the cops. This kind of thing happened. She'd been there five hours, and it was obvious that she was stalling on the bill. She's uh, got a good buzz Tina Wagner wasn't coming. Exactly. Yeah. And so they call the officer, and the officer comes, and they make the arrest, and uh, she takes her to the police precinct. And they had given her sort of special privileges. She still had her phone when you're arrested. Like, you oh shouldn't still have your phone. And so she, but the officer realizes that she's like deleting like text messages. And when she sees that things are being deleted, uh, she'd been given her phone to call her lawyer and instead is deleting these text messages. And so when, when the officer realizes that she's deleting evidence potentially, she takes the phone away and then she's also charged with, you know, obstruction. And or uh, is told that New she York's could finest. Be. Right. <laughs> and uh, and I believe it is this very day, or this very arrest, that uh, she ends up going to Manhattan Criminal Court. And it was a really slow day at the office. I was not there. The New York Daily News is the one who kind of broke this original story. And I know the photographer and the reporter who did it. And it was the strangest thing. It was a slow day. The photographer just wanted to go home. And he had to take a picture of something or someone. And he was getting desperate. Just nothing bad had happened in New York. And for crime and court reporters, that's not a great day. Uh, there was just, there was nothing to do. And so he noticed this woman. And she was dressed in designer clothes. And she just appeared to him to be out of the ordinary for somebody who was, you know, cuffed and, uh, and, and coming out of court. And she was with a kind of bigger name lawyer and it just seemed weird. And so he took a picture and he told the reporter that he was uh, paired with, you know, you got to write a story, just write a story on this and we can both go home. And she looks at the charges and this woman has been, you know, arrested for not paying a, a $200 meal bill, right? Like this is not a story. This doesn't go, this doesn't go in the paper, but just sort of as a favor to him, she writes up the story. It is the top red story all month. And they're wow. like, why? Yeah, why? Why? why are so many people interested in this, 
woman who didn't pay $200 at the nave. Well, it later comes out, right? Within, in less than a year, it comes out that this is, you know, the Anna Delvey of the Upper East Side. And the reason it kept getting read was because all these Upper East Siders were like, what, what? And sending it to their friends and reading it and talking about it. And it was, it just blew up. And so this very little story of, of really no consequence that, that frankly, I mean, I think the reporter herself would say, shouldn't have, like, under normal circumstances, wouldn't have even been written, uh, ends up becoming this kind of, like, interesting, you know, buzz. And that is in July of 2017. By August, her friend Rachel Williams has contacted the police, and I believe even the FBI were involved. It, it became this issue where they had gone that spring to Marrakesh, and she had been left with about a $60,000 bill. She had put down her Amex card for basically everything. The airplane, you know, all the expenses when they got there, shopping uh, you know, on the streets, and had even put down her company card for the hotel, which was a majority of the expenses. And Anna was avoiding her and not paying her back. She paid her $5,000, but that was the, the only amount that she ever paid her back on it. And she goes to the police in Chinatown and makes a complaint. And the officer says, like, you'd be lucky to get that back. But, you know, with your face, maybe you could make a, uh, a GoFundMe page. Jesus. Uh, again, New York's finest. <laughs> And she walks out of the precinct and bursts into tears. And eventually, <laughs> uh, <laughs> eventually, <laughs> eventually oh she continues, she continues, you know, making complaints. And I think that the FBI contacts her and she gets a call from them and they were already on it. The, the Parker Meridian incident with the $200 bill is not what, you know, put, put law enforcement onto her case, but it's what started to rip away at the charade that she had created on the Upper East Side. And you see after that moment, everything kind of falling apart. And that, folks, is where we're going to stop for today. Next week, we're going to talk about the trial. We're also going to talk to Todd Spodek, her lawyer, through the trial that had a pretty interesting opening argument for this case. And we're also going to hear again from Emily Palmer, all right, well, that wraps up the first part of our two-part series on Anna Sorok and Anna Delvey. Uh, what a femme fraudster she was and still is. As always, reach out to us, fraudsterslpn at gmail.com. I'm at Cena now. Justin Williams on Facebook, justinwilliamscomedy at gmail.com. If you send him an email, he'll come to your house. As always, big thanks to Hazel Bryan, Marie Anderson, Emily Fusco for all the research and production and editing help. And this has been a production of Zero Cool Media and Last Podcast Network. Ever been to Delaware? If not, now's the time to visit. You'll find a lot of fun in a little state. Since you can drive anywhere in the state in a couple of hours, you'll spend less time driving and more time enjoying. Explore from the bays to the beaches, stroll the boardwalks, and have an oceanside bonfire. Get a taste of Delaware at one of the award-winning restaurants and enjoy a local craft brew. See the first state's unique historic landmarks and experience Delaware's endless discoveries. Plan your adventure today at visitdelaware.com. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.